Welcome everyone to Life in the Peloton. We're here again. I've got Lionel to help me introduce this episode. Welcome Lionel. Hi Mitch, how are you doing? I'm doing well mate. I've got a special episode this week. I've spoken to my team boss, Jonathan Vorders, but more importantly, what I've tried to talk to him about is being a team owner, a team manager, a GM, a team owner as well. I've tried to uncover what that job really is because Actually, I started to think about it. I was like, I don't really know what these guys do behind the scenes. Intriguing, because this is effectively you interviewing your boss. It was a funny dynamic, but actually in the end, once I got over that fact, we just had a good chat. He's very easy to talk to, and he's very great at explaining what he does. So guys, sit back and enjoy this one. Cheers. Well, welcome, Jonathan Vorders, JV, as uh, I pretty much call you all the time. You are my boss. You are the manager of my team. But before you're a manager, you're a writer. So welcome to Life in the Peloton. Nice to have you on board. Oh, thanks for having me. What I want to do first off, before we start, today's podcast is about team managers. And it's a really, really big role of the part of cycling, but a lot of people don't actually understand what you guys do, as in team managers, how things run. But before we get to that point, what I think is really important for everyone to to know is a little bit about who you are, because you were a pro for about 10 years as well before, and you were riding in all kinds of teams. You rode, you know, in a Spanish team in the very beginning, and then you went through, you know, US Postal at the height of their at their period and then also in a, in a French team and then finish up with a, an American team. So I think it was a great sort of dynamic of different teams before then retiring and then moving into an, an idea of starting your own team. What I want to ask you after all that is give us in a nutshell, if you can run down what it was like as a pro rider and then what that what led you to that decision of starting your own team or starting a team. Well, <clears throat> I mean... It- it was a lot of happenstance. I mean, um, you know, when I, when I stopped racing, I wanted nothing to do with bike racing. I mean, I wanted to separate myself from the sport as much as, as I possibly could. Um, so I went into totally different things. I had a, you know, a real estate business and I was doing consulting for a financial services firm. And I mean, it was a million miles separate from cycling. And then I, you know, sort of like two years into that, um, I started missing the sport, but not at like the professional level. What I was noticing in the U.S. at that point in time is that, you know, we had Lance Armstrong, who's off winning the Tour de France every year, but nobody was doing anything at all, you know, with junior development or U23 development or like there are these kids that. I don't know, they wanted to race the Tour de France, but no one was even showing them how to clip into pedals, you know? Out, of, it, was a, it was a funny little proposition, but this magazine that I had a relationship with in, in, in Denver, um, the publisher and I decided to start this little junior team. And, and the two sponsors were myself and him. Like, we, we were the first two sponsors. It was just six kids uh, that I picked from Colorado. And, you know, they were like 14 to 17 years old. Um, it's kind of funny if you listen to who the, the six kids were because it was um, uh, Timmy Duggan, Peter Stetna, Alex Howes, uh, Ian McGregor, Jay Koo, and Andrew Menart. 
So, you know, it's kind of funny. Of those six, like of a six-man junior team that was just, you know, randomly picked in Colorado, three of them went on to race the Tour de France or the Olympics or, you know, so it's a pretty, mm. good, hit, pretty good hit ratio. It's but, amazing hit ratio. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, at that point in time, it was just like, okay, like in the local car dealership gave us a car and, you know, my businesses were going well enough that I could kind of take some time off. So, you know, I'd drive them to races and we, I mean, it was total bare bones setup, but Le Mans gave us bikes, you know, Shimano gave us components, whatever. It was, uh, it, it, it was whatever. It was a fun little team. So anyway, with that little team, um, we started winning a lot. You know, those guys started winning all the national championships and we were able to, um, you know, we just got some attention. And then all of a sudden when you get a little bit of attention, there was another guy who I knew and he was the, the head of, of communications for the Wall Street Journal. And he's moving into a new job and he sort of, it was a funny, funny thing. This is one of these weird things. He's like, well, you know, if you help me lose 40 pounds, <laughs> You know, I'll uh, I'll help you learn the world of business. And I said, okay, great. That sounds like a fair trade. Like I'll help you lose 30, you know forty pounds, and you'll help me uh, you know enter into business. And so I did a lot of work for him. And then when he moved into this new job, um, it was at this company TIA Craft. Uh, I said, you know, he was rebranding the entire company, and as the as the head of marketing. And I said, you know, what you need to do, Steve, this, guy, this guy's name is Steve yeah. Goldstein. I said, yeah, you know, you, you should sponsor a cycling team. And, <laughs> and he said, oh, all right, let's do that. And so then we did that. And then that kind of grew the team one more notch. And again, we, we did really well. You know, we, we were very competitive on a national scale and even, even starting to kind of poke through to some international races. And then the original investor in the team, Doug, found me um i i wasn't looking for him um we did a fundraising dinner uh every year in denver uh for the team and i get this call i get this call like four hours before the dinner and it's this guy and says hey you know i'm from new york and i'd really like to come to your dinner and i said oh i'm sorry and it's sold out and he's like well you know it'd be really great if i could come and i'm gonna make the trip from new york and i looked at my watch and i was like the dinner starts in, you know, in like four, four and a half hours. I'm like, there's no way somebody in New York could make it to Denver in four and a half hours. And then in my little thing went off in my head. I'm like, unless they had their own jet. And if they had their own jet, then they could do it, barely. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, I said to him, I'm like, you know, uh, if, you can, if you can make it here, if you can be here on time, you can sit next to me. Yeah. Yeah, sweet. Well, like it sounds like to me, like what I was sort of alluding to there with the with the whole riding on different teams and the way it sort of happened there, what I can hear you saying is things just sort of kept evolving and it doesn't sound like yeah. to me that way back in your career, you're like, you know what? I want to run my own team once no, upon a time, never, you know? Like, never, 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 never. But when you look back at your career and you think about all those times you had back in Spain in Santa Clara and then the experience you had in US Postal and then going into a French team as well like Credit Agricole and then coming back to Prime Alliance, all those different environments, do you think that set you up with the right sort of mindset to go, I know what's missing from cycling and I know how I can do it from not necessarily thinking like a managerial role, but if I had my own outfit, this is the way I'd do it. Were you thinking like that back in the day? Uh... To a degree, I mean, I certainly, I mean, the original objective, you know, is a little more nationalistic in that, um, 
you know, I really felt like I just wanted to help out American writers. Mm. Um, and I felt like there was a, at that point in time, there was this huge gap between, you know, guys racing in the U.S. just, well, you know what it was? Actually, here's what it was, is that mm. I didn't really think that a lot of American riders would be able to go through the experience that I went through in my early years and actually make it. So I figured, like, if all these guys have to go through what I went through, where you, you show up, you know, in the Madrid airport and get picked up at the airport by a Russian soigneur and driven to a house and you just sort of like your suitcase is dropped in front of a door and then that's, and then your bike shows up the next day. I mean, that was a really harsh way to start as a pro rider, right? And I thought, mm. you know... 90% of these kids are never going to deal with that. Like, no matter how good of a bike rider they are, they're just going to, after like three months, they're going to say, you know, this is, this is crazy. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, just live a life where I don't talk to anyone and that I have like an angry Russian pounding on my door every day or what, you know, I mean, it's, so the, the whole idea was, well, let's set up a team where actually it's a bit more friendly than that for, for, you know, and and make an environment where guys that maybe are that were far more physically talented than I ever was, but maybe didn't quite have the, you know, the the ability to just endure like life bullshit. Mm. That that those guys will actually be able to succeed. And um, so that's that's what I was looking at. Is like how do I how do I get like more guys like over the fence? You know, that aren't Belgians, mm. that aren't French or Italian. You know, that aren't from traditional cycling countries how do i get more really talented guys you know to really exploit their talent to the fullest degree without um without losing them to just practical stuff you know of how to pay your water bill in spain yeah exactly and like it's supporting them in a way some guys like you said there's some guys like yourself that don't necessarily need that support that uh you wish you had it, but you were hard enough to get through that period. But there's some other guys that need that little bit of support and you can see that talent and you're like, hang on, maybe I can create this environment and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but what I see now and even being involved in your team now and what I see from the future is you're able to create that fast-forwarding many years to a world tour team, the very beginning of Slipstream. It sort of was birthing this, this environment where you were able to set that up over in Spain, in Girona, and was that the now thinking about it, is that the idea as a manager what what you really wanted to create with your own team there i mean it, it, the backbone has always been you know in a way to take you know to take underrated talent and then support it and see if you can get the best to come out of it i mean that mm-hmm. that's sort of i mean that's always been the philosophy and yeah and, and and that does apply to the world tour as much as it applies to a u23 or development team um, or at least it applies to you know, this world tour team. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's fast forward and let's get into the, the nuts and bolts of it. What are the fundamentals of running a team? Um, as a team manager, I guess both sides as a world tour manager and <clears throat> way back in the beginning, because in the beginning, I think it's a little bit more of a jack of all trades. You're DSing, you're managing, you're yeah. maybe washing bikes as well on the side or whatever you're doing. But run me through for everyone out there who doesn't really understand the job itself one, the two differences, and what you're doing actually on a day-to-day sort of scale in a world tour team. You know, it's funny. The job has evolved, and it's not necessarily in a, in a linear pattern. You know, of course, when the team was smaller, you're right that it was it was you know you're DSing and you're washing the, the bus and you're and you you know and you're also managing the you know the finances of the team and doing the accounting or whatever. And then as it progresses, it becomes more specialized. But even in the specialization, you know, there have been years where I felt 
that my job was 85% finding funding for the team and 15% managing the team. And then there have been other years where I've been said, okay, like now I can let that go a little bit and I can focus more on, you know, 2018, 2019. In that period of time, you know, you've been here, the focus has been more on gradually building up the performance side of the team and actually not worrying about the funding side of the team. Mm. Conversely, you know, in 2016, 2017, I wasn't focused on the performance side of the team at all. I was solely focused on, <laughs> on fundraising, right? Yeah. So, so the job really, it, it does, it changes a lot depending on, on what the team needs out of you. So what I, what I attempt to do is always just put myself in sort of the highest need area. And, that, and that's sort of, that's the big picture. But the day-to-day -day basis, the day-to-day -day sort of construct of a team manager, the three basic things that it sort of shifts between are one, uh, building the roster. Mm. And when I say building the roster, it's building the rider roster, but also the staff roster. It's choosing good people. That's maybe the most important one. It's choosing good people defining what the culture of the team is by who those people are that you're mm. choosing, right? Then two, you know, well, like what I just said is, is, is fundraising. Cycling teams do not generate revenue on their own. So a cycling team is always, it's a perpetual startup. You know, you're always fundraising for the next year, for the next five years, for the next three years. It, it, that never stops. It's, it's, it is quite literally a perpetual startup, and that's the best way to describe it. Um, so, because there's never just a stable revenue source. And then the third part is, and this is something that I've been able to delegate off as we've become a more mature organization, um, is actually you know managing the actual day-to-day -day, the operations of the mm. team. Now that, as you know, now that's more in like Charlie Regelius and Jonathan Breekfeld's court than it is mine. And that's been part of the job evolution that little by little, I've been able to sort of focus more on the first two and not so much on the last one. And then I guess I should add in, you know, and maybe this is the biggest one is that as a manager, you set the tone of what, you know, what are we about as a team? Are we about, you know, if you're whatever, if you're Patrick Lefebvre at Quick Step, you're the tone is. Uh, you know, the more races we win, the better. Like, even, even if, if we're winning, you know, whatever, the Nokura Corsa or, or yeah. God knows what, like, it's still a race win, you know? So it's just like the more points you put on the board, the better. Conversely, um, you know, if, if you look at like a team like, um, like Team Type 1, right? Okay, it's a smaller operation. But Team Type 1, they have a very specific strategic mission of essentially promoting... Um, that, you know, people with type 1 diabetes can actually race bikes at the highest level in the world. Well, that has nothing to do with winning races, mm. like zero. So, and then there's teams that are anywhere in between those two. You know, in EOS, it's like, well, we want to win races, but we really only care about winning one race, which is the Tour de France. And then you have, uh, you know, whatever, like an Italian team that would say, well, we really only care about one race in the Giro. So, it's, it, there's... There's setting the tone of, in, in this team I would say is, it's a blend of, yes, we want to win races, but we need to do it the right way. And, mm. we, and we need to do it with the right people that have a personality that we feel like, you know, is a, is a personality that people can grab onto because we're a very, we're a team that's, that's trying to, you know, promote 
cycling worldwide for everybody, as opposed to just strictly sort of looking at traditional European races as, as the way to go forward. Do you think, and that was a question I was going to ask, and you've more or less answered it now, how important the image is of the team. Is that something you really feel you can have your hand in? And does it come down to the selection of riders and the way you sort of mould them or the selection of staff? Is that how you've, over the years, sort of created that image that, not image, but also that the culture of the team? Is it down to the riders you select? Or do you think that actually comes from the top, from a guy like yourself setting the example? It came from the top 10 years ago. And it still does to a degree, but now it's a little bit like almost a perpetual motion in that mm. now you have riders, like a guy like Rigo, he's going to feel at home in this team. He's going to seek out this team. He's going to say, I want to sign with that team. And it's going to make sense for him because of his personality, right? Mm. But you take, I don't know, I mean, we could... I mean, I guess, whatever, since Chris Froome is in the news, you take a guy like Chris Froome, regardless of price point and ability and whatever else, I don't think his, like the, the, his personality might not fit in as well. So he's not going to seek out a team like ours. So it, what is, is to say is that the riders that we have on the team now are ones that have said, I want to be on that team mm. because, because of the personality and because of the image that it has. So that almost leads to the, the, the culture of the team, the background culture, almost um, it, it just keeps itself going. Like I only have to sort of, like it's like a giant yeah. snowball. I just have to like push just a tiny bit here and there. But other than that, it's basically like the people that are attracted to what we are are the exact opposite of the people that are attracted to what Dekoinik is. Like, mm. so it's like, I, I never really, with like directors or staff or, or even riders, I don't think I've ever being in a bidding war with, with Patrick Lefebvre, ever. Mm. Because the people that are attracted to that culture wouldn't be attracted to our culture, and the people that are attracted to our culture wouldn't be attracted to the Dutch culture. So it's kind of like, um, you you know, you really do set up, like, what you want to be by the people that, that choose you and the, and the 10 years ago that I originally chose. I think, like, and that's, and that's true what you say, but I, I do think you're, you're not giving yourself enough credit there because like you said with the snow, snowball theory you you let that snowball go but all of a sudden it's rolling down the wrong side of the hill and right. you know two three years later you're like what the hell is this team so like you said there's little pokes here and there but i think the intricate little pokes and whatever that is your personality and maybe it's not even making a big speech or whatever it is they're the little things that keep this team or whatever team you're managing on the track that you want it to go. And I think that's an important role that maybe gets overlooked um, that people don't actually really understand. Yes, the riders are attracted to that. But like you said, it just takes three, four, five guys and all of a sudden the team's rolling down the wrong side of the hill. Shoot, shoot that arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. Well, this episode of Life in the Peloton is sponsored by Whoop, who have been supporting the cycling podcast in recent weeks. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on how recovered you are and how much stress you've been putting your body through during the day. And uh, I've been wearing my Whoop wristband for uh, coming up for three weeks now, and I've been just kind of getting used to the rhythm of my recovery score in the morning and, and just analyzing how well I have slept. And I have been tailoring how 
what kind of decisions I've made when it comes to going out on the bike. It kind of reinforces how I feel about myself, really. If I feel not 100% recovered, I kind of it gives me some information um, to sort of back up how I'm feeling. And I feel like I'm getting a little bit more in tune with how I feel on a, on a daily basis, really. But Mitch, EF Pro Cycling are also sponsored by Whoop. So I gather you're now wearing the wristband as well. I am, yes, and it is a very good training device. The thing that I really like about it is it actually syncs up to training peaks, and a lot of other devices don't have that application or that ability to do that, and the best part about that is all my training, all my data is on training peaks. It's one hub where my coach can see it, the team can see it, it's in one's place, and it's a great format that everyone can see that there. Everything that you listed before is a fantastic element of it that gets put up on training peaks, which is then able to use in conjunction with my training, my weights, everything like that, all the data's in one place. And like you said, what I'm loving about it is it's it's got my HRV on there. It's got my my sleep quality. Yeah, HRV you mentioned is heart rate variability, isn't it? Which is obviously the difference between your kind of peak heart rate when you're exercising and your resting heart rate. Um, but what does that kind of tell you? That's just telling you how well you're recovered and how much stress your body's in. For instance, when you're recovering, if you're you know you show a higher HRV, the body's still under stress. It's you might just need another easier day or even potentially a day off. You want to see that HRV come down, and you want to see it consistently show some patterns. If you, what you don't, if you have one spike in HRV, you can almost ignore that. But if you see it consistently starting to come up, it's a really good indication that you're reaching the the levels of fatigue where you need to start having a rest and bring it down, or potentially you've got some sickness coming on. So it's a really good indicator in conjunction with your training and your personal feeling, your comments. Yeah, that's interesting because it's not just one, uh, not just one thing that you're paying attention to. You're trying to get a holistic view of, of every aspect of uh, of your training and recovery. So um, it's it's I guess it's shining a light on another aspect of of, of how your body's working. Well, Whoop is offering fifteen percent off now with the code Cycle at checkout. So go to Whoop.com. That's W H O O P.com and enter the word Cycle at checkout to save fifteen percent. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. This episode is also sponsored by Stitch Fix. Now, if you're not familiar with Stitch Fix, it's an online styling service that takes the stress out of clothes shopping. When you sign up, you fill in a style guide, which gives your own personal stylist an idea of the sorts of things you like. And each month you get a delivery of great looking clothes, some of which are from the best known brands and some from great but less famous brands too. Now I've been a customer of Stitch Fix since they started sponsoring the cycling podcast over a year ago, and I've had regular and semi-regular deliveries ever since. And over that time, I found that the stylists are getting to know me because they are the ones that know how the different brands measure up against each other. And so they're able to send clothes that fit me well. If you return an item because it doesn't fit, you give them a bit of information, the legs were too long or the arms were too short or whatever, and then they tailor that info to your future Stitch Fix deliveries. And so after several deliveries, it now feels like they're doing all the hard work for me because I'm not someone who particularly likes trying things on in the shops. 
they've also sent through some items of clothing that I probably wouldn't have taken a gamble on. And uh, yeah, they've expanded my style horizon, so to speak. Now, each month you pay a £10 styling fee, and that goes towards the cost of anything you choose to keep. There's no subscription required, and returns are easy and free if you do need to send something back. Get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling. Talking about negotiations and the riders and that sort of part of the, the job, there's been some interesting periods throughout this team where, and I want to talk about this, where there's been some mergers as well. And I think yeah. just what you were talking about there, first of all, I want to talk about the negotiations where you actually get a chance to go, let's look at this guy, let's look at that guy. But then let's talk about also this period where, because of whether it's financial reasons or whatever, two teams have to come together and you get thrown a whole heap of riders that you don't necessarily think would fit your team. And all of a sudden you've got to just create, like you said, this this culture with these guys you've been given um run me through first of all though the the negotiation period and how, how how is that for you is that a period you like or is that something you over the years have got to better at or like or uh, well, run me through that you know negotiating with writers is always uh, it, it's always a difficult thing i mean um like it I mean, I, I don't know if I like it. I mean, you know, I, I, I like you, you like when you discover new talent and then you like mm. when whatever talent it is or, or whatever roster you've built performs really well. But of course, you know, the, the back end of, of performance is that everyone's going to cost more. And, and then and then that's hard because, you know, it's almost I mean, I remember in the 2011 Tour de France where I was having to kind of mix roles. I was the director in the race and the GM. And, you know, that was probably our most successful Tour de France. And we'd been in the yellow jersey like 10 days. And and um, one day on the bus, and I, I hadn't been thinking about, mm. you know, the budget or anything for like 10 days. I'd just been focused on the race, focused as a director, right? Nothing more. And Christian Vandeveld turns to me and says, he's like, man, we're really killing it. You know, Johnny. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, God, only imagine what those bonuses are going to be like. And like... <laughs> Christian describes it as he's like your face just went white he's like because you could just see that all of a sudden in your head you started adding it up and you're like shit I don't know if we have the money to pay for this let's get rid of this jersey (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly so you know sometimes I mean you know don't I'm I'm always really envious of a team like Ineos where I just I don't think Brailsford has ever had that moment once where he's just like there's not enough money in the bank to pay the bonuses. Like what? How we, you know? I don't think that's ever. He's never had to deal with that. So, but there are those. Um, yeah, there are those hard moments with negotiation. I mean, I, it's like hmm. the thing of it is, is having been a bike rider myself, I understand that basically every single bike rider, including Peter Sagan, who's on whatever six million euros a year, you're all underpaid. Like every every single rider in the peloton is underpaid. And by the level of risk that you take, by the level of dedication that it takes, by the level of talent that it takes, you're all underpaid by an order of magnitude. So when you're telling, when you're like fighting a guy for 30,000 euros or whatever it is, it just feels, I mean, that part's not any fun because it's like, you Mm. know, but in the end of the day, 
your job is to build the best team you possibly can with X amount of, of rider payroll. And you, you know, as, as soon as you go over that number, it means, okay, well, where does that come from? Well, then you got to fire, you know, a mechanic or you have to like put off buying, uh, you know, a, like, well, you know, our chef truck is about to die. So like you mm. put off, you put off buying a new chef truck for another year or another year after that. You can only go so long sort of continuing to scrape out of the infrastructure of the team just to keep, you know, all the riders happy. But I, I tell you, that's a, it's a really, yeah. it's a really shitty calculation to always have going on in your head. Like, you know, okay, I'm going to like profoundly disappoint this person and they're going to think that I think less of them because I didn't give them the salary that they feel they deserve only because I just want to make sure that this organization continues to be successful. And, you know, and there's a balance even in that because if you really disappoint someone, then they might not even perform the next year. So mm -hmm. then you're, so then it's like, well, you know, geez, like if, if they're really going to hate me that much, maybe I should just let them go to a different team because, you know, but this is all I can afford. And it's just this constant, um, it's a constant tug of war. So is it a challenge? Yes. Is it one that I enjoy? Mm, mm. Questionable. Yeah, because I could imagine, and just listening to you say that, it'd be very difficult not to take some stuff personally. And you just be like, you got to separate it. I, I can imagine it's like, hang on, and like they come back with this offer or they don't accept it, and you've done yeah. your best, and then you're like, yeah. hey, I can't take this personally. Like you said, maybe it's just not meant to be that they're in this team yeah. or vice versa. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, tell me then about the mergers because I think that's really interesting. Because and run me through. I think the teams had two mergers. Is that right? With Cervelo and also with um, Liquid Gas back in the day. Well, um, Draypack. And Draypack, of course, yeah. um, because it is a it is a bittersweet sort of scenario because I can imagine it comes at a point where you know financially it's it looks good and you know two sponsors come together and it fixes one problem, but I'm not going to say it's necessarily another problem getting half a roster, but ultimately you're probably going to have to cut your team in half and the other team's yeah. going to have to cut their team in half and all of yeah. a sudden you're together. Yeah. That's one problem, but the second problem I can imagine is. What I said before, you just got these riders. It's like, well, I don't know if I necessarily would have chosen those guys. Mergers are really hard. Um, they're really hard. You know, and, and, and typically, they definitely don't help the performance of the team for like a couple of years. It almost takes a little while for it to settle in, if that makes mm. sense. You know, what happens, I mean, I can tell you every single time uh, I ever tell Charlie Wegalius, um, Charlie, it looks like we might be doing a merger. He can just tell he just... <laughs> He just shakes his head and he's like, oh my God, do you know, like, why do we have to do this? Like, and so it's, it's really hard, you know, with the, the, the operations people, it's very hard on them. What happens a lot of time in, in mergers, interestingly, is even put aside whether you like the riders that are coming across or you don't, or there's sort of three categories of riders in a merger, right? There are riders under contract on both sides that like you'd like to keep and you want to keep. Then there's riders that are not under contract for the next year that you'd like to keep. Actually, four categories. Then there's riders who are under contract that you don't want anymore mm -hmm. on both sides. And then there's riders that, are under, that aren't under contract that you don't want, right? Okay. So, they're the easy ones. <laughs> yeah, they're the easy ones. But always in a merger, one side is, is keeping the license and the other side is losing theirs. So... If you can imagine, when the side that loses their license to come over to you, so like Cervelo, when they came to us, you know, they gave up their, their license and, and came over to us, they gave up their, 
all of those contracts are null and void, right? Because you're, as soon as that organization doesn't exist, the mm. riders are free to go. They're totally free to go. <clears throat> but it's one-sided as to say the riders are free to go, but if that sponsor is coming over and funding your team, the UCI requires you to take the riders that want to mm. come over. So what ends up happening is all the really good riders. Like imagine if we went through a merger right now and we were, we were going to go to a, another organization, right? Well, <clears throat> you'd have a guy like Sergio Higuita who would say, mm. oh, they have to take me if I want to go, but I'm also free to go shop every other team in the peloton. And right? if I can't get something better, I'll just come here. And I'll just come here, exactly. So the equation usually ends up that unless you're also getting like a massive increase in budget to go along with the merger, which usually isn't the case, what usually ends up happening is that all your highly, highly desirable sought after riders that can go for a high price tag, they end up leaving because you can't quite afford them. And all the riders that, you know, are, are you know, that, that you might want or you might not or whatever, and, and, and even forget about whether you want them or not. Like if you have too many climbers on a roster or too many sprinters or too many whatever, like that they, they don't necessarily fit in the roster just because of the way you built it. They all come over. So you end up with like a team that's sort of like overbuilt in one direction or doesn't quite fit in another direction or has too many young riders or too many old riders. Or, you know, it's, it's not strategically built because you've, you've, you've lost control over what you get to keep and what you get to let go. And, and so you end up kind of with just a mishmash of a roster. And then, you know, like I said, it usually kind of kills the performance for a year or two until you kind of get everything, you know, you start to rebuild it a little bit. I, I, don't, I don't know, you know, I think a lot of fans, they don't necessarily understand that. They just think, oh, well, no. if you push this and that together, then it, and then they look and they say, oh, gosh, you know, why didn't, why didn't Cannondale and Slipstream, you know, why didn't that work out so well the first couple of years? And you, and you, and you, you just want to say, like, look at the roster. Like, my God, like, how, how is it ever going to work out that well, you know? Tell me a little bit about then, you don't have to say too much, but the Cervelo merger for me on the yeah. complete outside looked like on a rider's side of things, things went well. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. Tor hadn't won the Worlds at that point, but all those guys, I look up to all those guys because a lot of the guys were classics and yeah. sort of yeah. my style of riders, so I, yeah. I love those guys. But it looked like a really good crew came across. Yeah, that's it, right. Was that, was that the feeling that they really wanted to stay there and come across, or they just had that option or they couldn't get other teams how did that all happen i think it maybe was pretty late in the year and they mm. and they uh weren't able to get other teams because i wouldn't say that those guys were happy to come across and especially the situation with tour made it especially contentious because what happened with tour was you know i'd been given my budget and we'd signed all the contracts and everything was sort of done and then tour wins worlds mm. and of course if you win worlds you want a new contract, you want a larger contract, you want a bonus, whatever. Well, there was no bonus in the contract for Worlds. And so, you know, I went to Gerard Vrooman um, of, um, of uh, Cervelo and said, hey, you know, Tor wants to get paid more. And I went to Garmin and said, hey, Tor wants to get paid more. And I, I went to Doug and said, hey, Tor wants... And they all basically said, you, you know, oh, you know, that's it's great that he's world champion, but they basically they all told me to go ask the other guy, you know, oh, go ask Doug or oh, go ask you know, and so in the end nobody wanted to pay. So then I had to sit down with Tor, you know, two weeks after World Championships, and basically tell him like, sorry, buddy, you're just gonna have to stick with the contract you've got. You know, you can imagine how happy he was about that. 
and then, you know, and he was the leader of that group of guys, right? And so yeah. they all kind of looked up to him. And so then they're just thinking, oh my God, this, this guy JV is a dick. You know, mm. like he's, he doesn't even give the guy a raise after he wins world championships. And so the, the tone right from the beginning of the season was not so great. I mean, we ended up winning a lot of races that year and, and having a superlative season, but it was tense. I mean, it was, mm. it was not a fun team to be a part of that year. Well, you just sort of talked about it then, wins. What is it like when you've created something and then they go on and win? Try and compare that to back like when you were a rider and like, for instance, you're like a, a big victory for you up Monvin to win. Can you even compare those two things? Because it's so personal that, that win, uh, that's just one win I'm talking about with you. But when you create something and when you have this team and, you know, that year you guys won Roubaix, I think. Um, yeah. I can imagine that was an amazing moment. But is there the same well, feeling or is it better or worse? What's the feeling there? Well, you know, that, that actually that win in Roubaix was a classic example of like there were sort of the Cervelo guys and then there were guys that came with me. And that day in Roubaix, Johan van Sommeren won. And he was sort of the guy that came from Garmin. And it, it was just, I remember Tor, you know, because at the end of the day, Tor was just sitting on Consolara's wheel, basically preventing Consolara from getting across to van Sommeren. And Tor didn't like that. And Consolara didn't like that. And, you know, the Sorella guys didn't like that and whatever. And so in the end, you know, like Tor, we were like having a party on the bus, but Tor just didn't even show up and he just left, you know. You know, end of the day, it never came down to like, you know, where you came from or where. I mean, when Davide Formolo in the first year of the Cannondale merger, when Davide Formolo won the stage of the Giro, I was as happy as could be. I didn't think like, oh, that guy's from Cannondale. That was a merger where we basically just took on a bunch of really young Cannondale riders mm. and they were just really happy to be on the team. Whereas like the Cervelo guys were not so happy to be on the team. So in the end, sure, I was, was I happier about Davide Formolo winning um you know, stage of the Giro as opposed to Tour winning stage of the Tour. Absolutely, because because quite simple as like Davide Formolo was really friendly to me and Tour wasn't very friendly to me. Mm. I mean, it's and what, just like any other human, right? And what about just you know, aside from the mergers in terms of just when the team wins opposed to say an individual win? Or like yeah. I'm talking about back in your own, own career. Like can uh, you, is there any kind of similarities there or they're just two different things and they're both awesome or one's better than the other? I value um, winning on this team much more than I valued winning in my own career. You know, it's I don't I don't know why that is, but like, but I can say the level of emotion, like you know, um, whenever we've won a team time trial, especially mm. team time trials, the level of emotion that I get out of winning a team time trial on this organization is exponentially higher than anything I experienced as a rider. Just to be very frank, like I remember winning the or the team winning, I should say, the 2004 U23 National Championships in the U.S. with Ian McGregor, right? That's like one of my favorite moments in cycling. You know, I built the team up. I was coaching him. He, you know, I, I set the tactics that day, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It just meant a lot more to me than, um, than when I won myself. I don't know why, but I just, I remember, you know, watching Ian cross the line in Park City, Utah. I mean, this isn't even a very important race, but, and just thinking... It was so happy watching him win and watching him get to experience that. So yeah, I, I value the, the team winning a lot more than I than than my own personal wins. That I, I don't know why that is. I, I couldn't really tell you. I think I, I can only draw the similarity, and I'm sure you would have this as a rider, is that I feel much more out of a, a team's time trial victory as a rider, and also a lead out sprint victory than 
maybe if I'd just gone solo from kilometer one and one, there's a different element to it. I'd still be happy if I won a solo, you know, breakaway, but there's just this awesome sort of feeling like we did it. We created this. We all worked as a team and, um, yeah. Yeah. There's one other thing I want to ask you, and I think it's quite a, a nitty gritty sort of thing is dealing with sponsors and this is sort of something that a lot of people don't really get you know you get a sponsor and then all of a sudden you get this lump sum of cash and that's it you know everyone's happy how do you go about you know dealing with sponsors and getting sponsors and is it a financial thing or is it equipment and then trying to get these payments from sponsors or is it pretty smooth sailing how's it all how does it actually all work every year (laughs) well it's not a lump sum to start off with um (laughs) Uh, um, I mean, sponsorship is, there's so many different types of sponsorship, right? There are, you know, the guys like Tinkoff, right? Tinkoff is a sponsor. There's zero commercial value for Tinkoff Bank to be sponsoring a cycling team. But Oleg Tinkoff just wanted, it was like it was an ego extension for him, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's one type of sponsor where where the guy just wants to be, he wants to have created a winning team. He's just a billionaire and he, mm. he just wants to buy the best. You know, he's bought the best car and he's bought the best airplane and he's bought the best. So he just wants to buy the best cycling team. That's one type of team. Then there's a team like this where it's a very commercially oriented team, not in the negative sense, but like EF has genuine business objectives with the team. Um, it needs to, you know, rally internal employee support and morale um, inside of EF. It needs to create branding exposure globally for a rather sort of unknown brand. It needs to generate sales leads. It needs to, you know, lead to employees leading a healthier lifestyle, higher productivity, right? There's all these like very defined performance metrics with a sponsor like EF. You know, that's a much busier type of sponsorship because mm. you, you know, there's a constant balance of, I mean, as you see, like we do so many um, events like employee mm. engagement events and and you know we're going to bike shops or we're going to schools or we're going to whereas you know like in an Oleg Tinkov team you would never waste the energy of the team going to a school or going to a bike shop or whatever because the only objective of the team is to win and so with us we have to say you know we have to say okay well that we've got two components here we have this like we, we need to the, the image of the team has to fit with what EF is and you know, we have to hit our marketing objectives and we need to win races because that helps our marketing objectives. And then you've got teams that are sort of a hybrid of the two, you know, that are that have some sponsorship interests and some, and even inside of the commercial sponsors, some want a very strong social media presence, some don't care, some just want to be seen on television, some do not care about television and instead they want to have like a strong, you know, internal message inside their company. Some want to just, it, it's a whole bandwidth of um, of what different sponsors want to see out of the team. Where do you where do you fit in there? Because you've been in some tough you know tough situations sometimes where the team literally is going, this team is going to fold if we don't get a sponsor. So I can imagine you sort of like anyone out there, give me any kind of money, I'll have you on board. Is that the case, or have you still got your morals there? You go look. Yes, I'm sort of to a degree, I want any sponsor, but I'm not going to go anywhere. I just want, like you said, EF's a really neat fit with this team. Our sort of guys yeah. in our team really promote that that lifestyle and we work well with that sponsor. It's a, it's a beautiful fit. Is that how you always approach looking for sponsors or does sometimes it get to a point where you're like, 
I need cash. It certainly does get desperate at times. There's no doubt about that. Um, but going back to the Tinkov example that I was just using, even if Tinkov wanted to sponsor his team, which he never would because he, he's so a contradictory of a personality to me that he would always just think, I'm never mm-hmm. sponsoring that guy. Even if he somehow overcame that, like it would last six months before it would just end in tears. You know that you have to realize that that as a manager you do have a personality, that your team has a personality, that you have a certain image, that you you know you've set things up to be a certain way, and that not everyone is going to fit that. And and that's hard to admit at points when you do have somebody with a large amount of cash saying, "Hey, I'll do this." But you have to step back and say, okay, that solves our problem for mm-hmm. maybe one year, but it doesn't. I mean, you can see the situation with Mickelton, you know, with the, with the whatever, the Michaela Foundation. I think they probably ran into that where, you know, they really needed the cash and, and Shane Bannon went out and found the cash. And then all of a sudden, Jerry Ryan sort of had second thoughts about whether or not, you know, that would actually fit in. And I, I understand that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I get it. Like you... It's, it's really hard to find anyone that wants to give you that amount of money for bike racing, to be very frank. And then to find somebody that'll give you that amount of money that also fits with the image of the team, it's doubly hard. That being said, you've got to keep those standards because if you don't, it, it'll, just end, it'll just end in tears. You're just, you're just prolonging the inevitable as opposed to just owning it yeah. up front. Oh, well, this is the last sort of question here I've got for you and it just sort of comes off the back of that. Do you have yourself a sort of a personal sort of mission statement, something you try and go about trying to achieve when you're creating your teams? And you've, you've spoken about this a little bit before. What is your personal personal mission statement when you are trying to, when you wake up in the morning, what do you want to portray about yourself and about the, the organizations that you're running and hopefully for the future? What do you want to, what do you want to achieve there? Well, I mean, the biggest thing is, you know, for me personally, and, and and really what I try to project forward in the team and, and outwardly is authenticity. Um, meaning, I re- it's really really important to me that people believe in when we win a race that they that that like getting cycling over this hurdle of being seen as you know a dirty sport, a contemptible sport, the sport of Lance Armstrong, the, you know, the, 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 like getting people to the point where they actually just see the beauty in the sport. That's what I see as that's my personal mission, because I just feel like it's it is such an incredibly beautiful sport, such a compelling sport, such a, a sport that can generate such intense emotion. And I think for a large number of people, it, it it's they've sort of switched off a bit to it. Because because of all the scandal that it, that has occurred, you know, in the last twenty years, and you know, and because it's it's also it's such a nuanced sport that unless you're educated in it, you you don't always understand what's happening. So it's it's very easy for a casual like tons of Americans in like the mid two thousands that would just say. I remember one time in the tour of Georgia, we're going up this hill, and there's this lady on the side of the road, like you know, a fan yelling for the riders. And then I hear her saying, I wish they would just let Lance ride by himself so that I could tell which one he was, right? And I'm thinking, Jesus, you know, like, to me, that's the hurdle that this sport has got to get over, that it's, that it's like we need to get to the point where people understand the racing and they understand what's going on and it's compelling and interesting and, and they understand that this is a subtle game of chess and that the athletes involved are 
really mm. great people. And that, <clears throat> you know, that, that this is an authentic and real sport that's, you know, real suffering of human life. And that it's, so my mission is to like, to, to create a team that can convey the message of how authentic cycling is. And that when we win, that people really feel the same emotion that we uh, feel when we win. Mate, that's brilliant. Very, very nice. I think um, not only have we got a great idea of sort of what the role is today, but I've got a great insight to you, and I hope everyone has too, and about what our team's about. Thanks, JV, for being on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a run for the border here very soon. We'll see if uh, they, I have to get all kinds of special government permission since I'm a contaminated American. <laughs> Hopefully it all goes well. Great, mate. Great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, there we have it. There's JV's thoughts. I thought it was bloody good to hear it. He was really honest in that one. And that's what I really loved, especially as me being a team member as well. Once I said, like I said, once I got over that fact, I think once we both got over that fact, things just really flowed. And it was just a great conversation to hear what it was like behind the scenes and to get in, get for me to have a chance to ask him those questions. I thought it was fantastic. I was really happy that he gave me that time as well. What did you think of the episode there, Lionel? Well, I've spoken to Jonathan uh, many times over the years um, when he was a rider and then when he was just putting together this little team. You know, the, the, the subtitle of the team is Slipstream Sports, isn't it? And as, as he explained, it's gone through many guises and, and the two mergers, which on the outside, you know, there must, be, must have been such pressure to make those mergers look smooth, like everything's going to plan. But having to put together, basically telling half of, your existing team and half of somebody else's team that, that you don't want them anymore and then trying to build a whole new team dynamic out of the, the guys that remain. Uh, I think from the outside, it, it's very easy to just assume that that sort of thing happens. And it was really fascinating to hear him talking about the Tor Hushov situation. Obviously, what I've, from the outside, you think, wow, they, they've struck gold. They've basically inherited the world champion here but not always necessarily plain sailing. So um, it's always good to hear uh, Jonathan Vorter talking because I always learn something. Even though I've interviewed him a number of times, I always pick up bits and pieces and just uh, hearing about uh, you know how he, he feels when, when his team's riders win. It just made me think of last week and the, the Dauphiné and your teammate, Mitch, Danny Martinez, winning. And when you think about the history of the organisation, that's one of the biggest overall stage race victories the team's ever had after uh, Ryder Hezidar's Giro and kind of level with Andrew Talansky's Dauphiné and Dan Martin's uh, Volta a Catalunya. And I just wondered, from your point of view as a teammate, not in that race, what's it like for you guys? Is there a team WhatsApp group? Are you, are you Were you watching on TV, kind of cheering him on, hoping that he'd uh, you know, clinch the overall win? Well, yeah, it was exactly like that. We all messages started floating around as everyone was watching the race. And personally, I was messaging Lawson Craddock and Mike Woods and just going, are you watching this? Are you guys watching this? Do you reckon Danny can get it? And it was that sort of conversation. And then we had a team, we have a group message on our team communication where once he'd got the victory, all the messages started flowing in. And... Um, you know, Danny got back to us and there was a small little chat on there too. But the best part was there was this sort of individual feeling like, yeah, we've made something of this year. Even though I wasn't there, he was representing the team. And 
that was actually relayed back through some emails and some messages from the top of the team as well, which was a nice feeling to know that, you know, they're still in tune with what's going on from the sponsors as well, that they're really proud of that result. And that result really showed the team spirit. And like you said, I had nothing to do with it. I was not, not even there. I've only seen Denny once up in Andorra, wave to him as he went past on the other side of the road. So you, to feel part of that, goes back to what JV was saying is that the culture's there and we support that and we care about each other and that was really the feeling um, with Danny and the general feeling throughout the season and if you go back to you know Alberto Betiol's victory as well I was left out of that Tour of Flanders but I felt just as much as that victory as the guys there on the day so it, it is a really big thing the culture and as you probably gathered from the podcast, I was really pushing on that point quite a lot because I was very interested to see how he's created that and how he's kept that going over the years as well. Yeah, was it interesting when he was talking about how he is rarely going to find himself in competition with, say, De Kerning Quickstep for the same kind of rider because the, the cultures are different and the, and the sort of objectives are different. Did, did you sort of internalise that, turn it on yourself and, and wonder what it was about you that makes you a good fit for this team? Or, or is that something that you were already kind of aware of and you gravitated towards that team because of your personality and the, and the type of rider you are? To be honest, it wasn't what I thought about coming across this team. I didn't think too much into it and I had a different perception of the team until I came into it. And once I arrived in the team, I almost immediately within the first sort of week or the first few days of the training camp, I went, wow, I can really be myself in this team. And I felt really comfortable. And from that moment on, that was in January 2018, I started to unravel the culture of the team and really just sort of felt myself and was able to be who I really am. And and everyone was like that. And I think that was a really big thing in this team is you're able to express who you are. I know it doesn't work for everyone, but for the guys that are in this team, it really works well for them. And I'm I, personally, for me, it's a culture that I really love. And how did you how did you feel to hear that you uh, your boss thinks you're terribly underpaid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was sort of nice to hear that because you're like, well, he does know, you know. It's like, <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was nice to hear, but you know, it doesn't um, doesn't necessarily like he said it doesn't translate into the negotiations. There's only so much money in the pot, and you know, it, it was sort of nice to hear that because even though you might know that or you don't know that it's difficult to not take things personally in those negotiations and it's nice to hear that and in the back of your mind one day when you're going through through those negotiations as long as you're not getting paid the bare minimum I think you might take that on board or some guys might take that on board and you know think okay maybe it's maybe it's for another reason maybe it's not personal um I think that's an important point to keep in mind with not only that but with a lot of certain things in teams or in life that you try and look at the bigger picture and go maybe it's not a personal attack at me yeah i mean it made me think listening to jonathan talking about the amount of time that he spent over the years trying to put funding in place whether it's for the following year as has happened a couple of times recently you know he kind of has saved the team a couple of times and and those mergers were i guess mergers of of convenience as much as as of desire really i mean you know he's, he's always been trying to keep keep the team going um and it just made me think about the economic model of of the world tour the the, the amount of energy that is spent just trying to keep the the ship afloat it's uh, it's unlike any other sport i can really think of in a lot of ways it's exactly it's very very strange and to hear him unravel that makes you feel a little bit uneasy you're like god it could really end you know at the end of next year or at the end of this year but 
even to bring it to the modern time, you know, it's it's still a difficult time even for our team at the moment and still some things are unsure, but I have a lot of confidence. If, there's, if you're ever going to have a lot of confidence in someone, it's got to be JV because he's been down that road before. He hasn't been down there once. He's been there, down there twice, three times, and he's brought that team back to the successful team that it is now. So this is something that I continually think in my own mind is that, you know, if you're going to have anyone down there in the trenches, you want to have him there, someone who's, you know, rode that horse before and he knows what to do. So, you know, we're still in pretty rough times in cycling and even personally with our team, we're still waiting to hear how it's going to be for next year. But I have a lot of confidence with him out there um, and I'm looking forward to hear what he comes up with. Well, a good result in the Tour de France wouldn't hurt, would it? And, and Danny Martinez and a few of the others are, are showing uh, that they're coming into form right at the right time. Oh, our team's looking great. And I think that Dauphiné, you know, aside from our team, was just a great race to watch. It was a brutally hard race. And I think that's going to be the way for the Tour de France. As much as um, I would have loved to have been there, it is definitely not a Tour de France for me this year. It's going to be a great one to watch from the from the couch. Um, and I'm looking forward to watching that. You're going to be over there, Lionel? I am indeed, yeah. I'll be leaving uh, in a day or so to go down to Nice for the, the Grand Depart. I'm kind of in, intrigued to see how it's all going to work. But uh, we're going to catch up when we're on the road. Richard Moore and myself will dial in with you uh, probably on the first rest day and kind of get all your thoughts on the tour so far and and cycling in general and i'm sure there'll be some questions from listeners as well um we'll do a kind of a mid-race catch-up for the next episode of life in the peloton yeah it's gonna be great i'm gonna have to actually make sure i've got my nose to the uh to the scent there with the tour de france make sure i know what's going on rather than sort of sitting back and uh, having a beer i'll be in tunely watching it and checking the results but it's going to be great to catch up and hear from someone outside the bubble because I'm sure you're going to be in some kind of quarantine bubble down there. But before we go, I have to have a big shout out to everyone out there who has been lucky enough to get on the Life in the Peloton caps. They sold out very quickly, but don't worry. There's a fresh load coming in. We've got some fresh a fresh order put in and it should be here by the end of September. Typically, Italy's on holidays at the moment. They're going to be back in that factory on the 1st of September. So I hope to have them out and up for sale again by the end of September. Hot sellers, Mitch. I mean, everyone wants to, to see how much luft they can get. <laughs> They've got a lot of luft. I was, <laughs> that was the first thing I had to check. And that's why I didn't put a massive order in. I said, so no point ordering two, 3,000 caps if there's got no luft. You know, I can only see it from the TV or from the computer. But once I got it in my hands, I went, design's good, check, luft is good. All right, let's put the big order in. Well, guys... Thanks for tuning in once again. Like I said, hang in there for those caps. They're going to be here in a few weeks' time. But until then, two weeks' time, I'm going to be speaking to Lionel and the boys about the Tour de France. So, guys, thanks a lot. Cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.